0: Good morning everybody. It's so good to be here anytime that that I'm able to come up to the coastlands and worship Jesus with you guys. It's so good. It just feels like family. I love that. Like everyone hugs me. I don't think I've ever been hugged more in my life than when I come up to the co- to coastlands. It's like the Olympics right? I've never seen more hugging until I watched the Olympics. Like, score hug, score hug. Everyone's <laughs> hugging. It's just amazing to, to come here and to actually feel like it's family. And one of the things that, that makes us family together is our shared philosophy of ministry, that what we're calling our, our DNA, the theological, missional, and relational. Though um, all of our churches and campuses are going to have a different flavor in our particular context, we share a, a common love for Christ and for His mission and we want to go deeper into Christ, and we want to go out with Christ on mission, and we want to do it with one another as a family. And so whenever we can, as our churches, we want to take the opportunities to actually spend time looking at what that means. And of course, Josh Kaler talked about what it means to be theological uh, last week, and I'm going to talk a little bit, hopefully very practically today, about what it means to be missional. We're, we're going to use a text. I'm not really going to spend too much time in the text. But use it as a platform upon which um, we can just be called to greater and deeper mission with Christ. So, so as you turn to First Thessalonians chapter one, let's give the Ventura Campus and Carpinteria Campus some love yeah. as they join us. As they join us in turning to First Thessalonians chapter one, I'm just going to read verse nine. And we're going to pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and to call us to action and response as he moves in our hearts and in our midst today. Amen? Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul the apostle writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking right now for your Holy Spirit to come. Be our teacher. Rescue us from the power that idols have in our lives free us that we might live on mission for you. I pray that you would show us what that looks like in the coastlands, what that looks like for your church in the coastlands. I pray that none of this would remain theory, but that it would become reality as we respond to what your Holy Spirit is speaking, as we surrender our time, our resources, our talents, everything that we have as we lay it down and say, Jesus, it belongs to you. It belongs to you. Direct us as you would. So speak to us, challenge us, encourage us. Give us a vision for your kingdom in the places in which we live, for your glory. In Jesus' name, And everybody said, Amen. Amen. amen, amen. Every culture has defined success differently throughout the ages. It's, it's something I'm fascinated by. I, I took vacation about a month ago, and, and I love to read. I'm a total nerd. If I could live in Barnes & Noble, I would forever. Just a chair and books, the smell, just everything. I, I love it. I'm a total nerd. I, I love reading. So I was reading a book on, on how success was defined differently throughout the ages. And there was a time in which a successful life meant you didn't have money, Some of you, your heart palpitates right now. Oh, oh no. In ancient Greece, you know, some pockets of that culture, a successful life would mean that you weren't connected to commerce because that was considered low and bad, and you killed people, and that was awesome. You know, that was success. Later on, you know, as you get into the 1700s, 1800s, uh, you didn't kill people because you were gentlemen and ladies in the aristocracy. You just slapped each other with your gloves or pocket squares or, you know, remember that? But you had a lot of money. And even in the United States of America in the last 100 years, a successful life has looked differently. There was a time in which success meant um, everything was fine. You lived in the suburbs. You had a, a, a wife or a husband. You had kids. You had, you know, a car. You had your house and everything was fine. But in more recent decades, it's all about being on a journey and on the road and discovering yourself, never knowing where it's going to end because it's not about the destination. It's about the journey, bro. I'm on the road with Jack Kerouac, and we're going deep. I'm going to go all the way to Santa Barbara, you know. I'm going to go all the way to the coastlands. See, success has been defined differently throughout the ages. So my question for all of you today is this. How do you define a successful life? How do you define a successful life? However you answer that question shapes your mission. How you answer that question shapes your mission in life. Now I have a second question for you. Where in the world did you get that idea of success? Where where did it come from? It seems like such a strange question to ask because it... We assume that what we're seeking in life seems totally natural. Like, well, why would anyone want anything else than what I want? Our expectations about money, about jobs, about education, friendship, sex, family, where did they come from? See, all of us in this room believe a story about our life. We believe a story. It shapes our expectations, and it produces practices in our lives. And this story plays again and again on the cinema screen of our imagination, called, called the Daydream." We, we think about it. We all have this story, because the truth is that all of us write the autobiographies of our lives long before we ever live them. Some of you are like in the middle of the book, maybe towards the end, appendix maybe for a few. But we all write the autobiographies of our lives long before we live them. We have a life script. Which begins in obscurity, in Ohio, or whatever, forged through the elementary school years, in a season of exile when you had to move out of state and college, and you came back to California, entering your years of being misunderstood. But like a phoenix rising from the ashes, you came up and you were successful and you got the girl, you got the boy, you got the kids, or you stayed single, or you got the job, you got the money, you created the project. Whatever it is, we have this idea of how our life should go. We daydream about it and we get upset when it doesn't happen. It is our life script. Where did it come from? Did it come from God? Did it come from Satan? Did it come from our own sinful desires? Did it come from the broader culture? Where did it come from? See, we just assume it's right and I wanna challenge everything today. I wanna challenge all of that today. Think of all the different things that have contributed to the writing of your life script. All of us are a part of a, a, a larger shared narrative of the United States of America, right? The land of freedom, land of opportunity, rugged individuals heading west where I can accomplish anything. We have that larger American narrative. Then think about Santa Barbara County and Ventura County. You have the more specific narrative, the things that are valued here, how you see life going here. You're shaped by those things. Is God even involved? If he is, is he seen as just a co-star that kind of helps you accomplish your greater mission? If so, then something other than God has become the controlling factor in your life, and you will go for it with or without him. You'll go for it with or without him. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians refers to that life as a life of idolatry. See, that's what an idol is. If anything becomes more important in your life than God, it becomes an idol, an enslaving force that you submit yourself to, which ultimately leads to destruction. And the Bible says that by nature, all of us have believed a lie. We believe that meaning and purpose and success is found in things other than God. We've all believed that lie. This idolatrous alternative story has trained us to live on a mission. And it is a mission for the kingdom of self. See, as we talk about being missional, the question is not whether you have a mission. The question is, what mission is it? Or whose mission is it? We're trained to live on mission for the kingdom of self. But the Bible storyline tells something completely different. It's about God breaking in to his created world to redeem all those people who have strayed from him because our God is a missionary God. When we turned our back on him, he sought to pursue us. When we gave him the finger, he came to rescue us because our God is a missionary God. The Father creates the world and sends his Son into the world. The Son is sent into the world to redeem it. The Holy Spirit is sent into the world to create and empower a church community that is to live on mission. Mission is an attribute of God before it's an activity of the church. It's an attribute of God. Christopher Wright in his wonderful book, The Mission of God, puts it like this. Our mission means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. This is what we're called to, friends. This is what we were made for, but there's a constant pull between two kingdoms, the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. So what does it look like to turn from serving idols and turn to serve the living and true God? What does it look like, what does it mean to go from serving the mission of self to serving for the mission of God? We all have a mission, but God's in the business of converting it. God wants to convert your mission. And that is what Paul heard about. And what he's writing about here in 1 Thessalonians, he heard about the church there, that there was this radical change, that their whole mode of existence had been totally changed. He had heard that they turned from serving idols towards the living God. In other words, God's mission converted their mission. And he wants to do the same for me, and he wants to do the same for all of you today. And I really want to make three super simple practical points about how he does that. He does that in three ways. By causing us, first of all, to care about the things God cares about. He converts our mission by causing us to care about the things that God cares about. We all make our plans based on what we value, right? We make our plans based upon what we really care about. I mean, look at your calendar. If I were to go into your phone, your your mobile device, whatever it is, and I were to look at your calendar, and if I were to look at your bank account, which is mildly creepy, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but if I, I were, if you were to allow me such access, I would quickly find what is most important to you. I'd look at where you spend your time, where you spend your money, because we build our lives around the things that we care about. We build our lives upon our longings. The question is, Are they rooted in self or are they rooted in God? One of the reasons that the Christian church can be so largely ineffective is because God's power and God's promises are often seen as a way to help us accomplish our own secular goals. People hear about God's power, they're like, yeah, I'm into God's power if it'll help me live a successful life. Oh, I'm into God's promises as long as it helps me accomplish my secular goals, my own mission. And let's be honest, isn't that how we often approach the Bible? Like, okay, where can I find a promise to help me accomplish everything that I want to do? Isn't that how we often read the scriptures? We're like, okay, I'm going to look for a great verse. Ooh, that one's convicting. I don't like that one. That's not good. I'm not going to, that one's not going on my refrigerator. Oh, riches and bounty. Yes, coffee cup verse. There it is. Is it, I mean, let's just face it. That's a lot of times how we approach the Bible. That's, in many ways, how we approach church. What inspirational nugget am I going to get today that will make me feel like I'm a champion so I can go live out my own goals and my own dreams and my own mission? We're all guilty. And it's one of the reasons that the Christian church can be so largely ineffective at times. But I, what I want us to see is what this leads to. It leads to a powerless and disappointed life. To only look at God and his power and his promises as something that just serves your goals leads to a powerless and disappointed life. Because you will always be frustrated because God's building his kingdom, and you're like, God, you're not building my kingdom. Isn't that what you say? My kingdom come? My will be done? On earth as it is on earth? Like, Isn't that what Matthew... Vibes, isn't that right? See, you're going to constantly be disappointed because God is not working according to your life script. Isn't that why we get so bummed when we, don't, when we don't get the job? After three years, we pull out our little script out of our back pocket. We're like, oh, wait, out of obscurity. Okay, did that. Forged through elementary school. Yep. Years in exile. Did that. College. Okay, but where's this part about I rise from the ashes? Like, I, I get the job, right? I get the, I get the stuff. God, where's my stuff? Do, do you need me to email you the copy of the script? I mean, I've got it right here. Do you want it? See, often we're mad at God because he's not following our script. But here's the truth, friends. God did not break into this world in the person of his son to help us build our selfish kingdoms. He didn't. He didn't. He broke into this world to enable us to live for him, for his kingdom, for his mission, for his better, glorious plan of redemption. So when Jesus Christ is king, and when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, you're totally reoriented, away from the kingdom of self, around the kingdom of God. And your motives change. And when your motives change, your mission will change. See, in the kingdom of self, there are all these things that have power over us. The opinions of others. Let's not underestimate how powerful the opinions of others have in our lives. Where we walk around constantly wondering what people think of us. Like, I'm so lame that I could be going to get my car washed, and I'm like, what does the guy think of me? Like, does he like my car? Does he think it's extra dirty, like more dirty than the other cars? I mean, do you like me? (laughs) Okay, maybe maybe I'm a little insecure. Maybe you're like, "Well, I don't think about that." There are certainly people in your life that have so much power over you that you would route your whole day in such a way as to get your boss to perceive you in a certain way. We care so much about the opinions of others. They have power over us. Status Well, I've got to be be perceived as, you know, kind of like middle class, upper class, highbrow, lowbrow. You know, some of you are like, no, I'm punk rock, lowbrow. Okay, you're trying to impress all the other people. I grew up near Berkeley. I know what you're talking about. You've got to stay in with your, your crowd. You've got to be perceived as having a certain type of status. And so you begin to look at other people, not for what you can give to them, but what they can give to you. We're just wandering around saying, approve me, approve me, approve me, like me. See, if we could put all of our thoughts on the screen here, wouldn't that be great of what we really think in a conversation? Like during a meet and greet time at church, like me a lot. Hi, my name's Tim. I'd like a very deep friendship. How would you guys respond? Like, What if you didn't know me and I'm just there, I'm like, Hi. I really want you to like me. (laughs) You'd be like, oh, like, like, give me your email. Like, totally, it's uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, there's no at symbol. It's fine. It'll totally work. Just don't ever talk to me again. But see, when God is at work in in our lives, he causes us to care about what he cares about. He opens our eyes to see what he wants us to see. You look behind the veneer. You look below the surface and you see people's true need. You're not just looking at them as as a person that can feed your self-esteem. You're looking at them as a broken image bearer of God and your heart breaks. You look at them as the way God intended for us to look at them. You see them as God sees them. And your heart begins to break for those who are lost. Your heart breaks for those who are in need. Because listen, church, if it doesn't start here, if it doesn't start with a broken heart, if it doesn't start with God working in your life, breaking the power of self, causing you to care about what he cares about, then the best you'll do is a hypocritical, self-righteous, religious lifestyle only doing the bare minimum requirement to appease your conscience. Like, okay, what do I got to do to be a Christian? Okay, I gave. I gave 10%, okay? I gave my 10%, all right? Like, I did it. Okay, I, I, I hugged somebody this week, okay? I did it. It's really hard. Okay, that, that's all I have to do. I'm good. Don't, don't pester me about mission. I did my thing. I gave 10%. I hugged. See, that's just, isn't that how most of us function? Like, okay, what do I got to do to, like, check the box, to bare minimum? But we usually do it just so our conscience feels better, so we don't feel guilty or we don't feel that that's not what God intends he wants to grab a hold of your heart he wants to grab a hold of your whole life to where you begin to see people in the way he does and you begin to look for him at work where is God at work in Santa Barbara where is God at work in Carpinteria? where is God at work in Ventura the Holy Spirit begins to reveal that to you and let me tell you you're never the same you can't look at anything the same when the Holy Spirit grabs your heart like that, right? I, I can't even watch travel documentaries anymore without thinking about the mission of God. My wife and I are watching about, you know, Norway. I'm like, Norway, the mission! <laughs> Denmark, Copenhagen. Sure, they've got fancy chairs, and they're the most beautiful people on planet Earth, we it's just freaky, like they made some deal with Satan to just <laughs> look good till they're 90. But, but do they know Jesus? They're not truly living life. God, work in Scandinavia. And I'm dead serious. I pray for Scandinavia often, just for the record. Jesus has ruined me. I can't even watch a travel documentary. I'm like, uh, the people. I have a map of Los Angeles in my office, and I look at it like a mission field. And I would hope that you do the same for your context because Jesus breaks the spell of our sinful desires. He breaks the spell of the American dream and he enables us to live for the mission of God. So that the question is, is not, how does God fit into my life? The question is, how does my life fit into the mission of God? It's a, profound, a profoundly different way to ask a question, isn't it? Well, God, like, is God useful? Isn't that how we usually think of God? Is he useful? Okay, here's the categories of my life. And oh yeah, it would look like God's a good tool to help me accomplish this. But when God grabs a hold of your heart, everything changes. It's not God, are you useful? It's God, you are beautiful. And I see you at work. And I I want my heart to love and see what you want my heart to love and see. Jesus gives you a whole new life script. And it is as we abandon our right to be in control and allow our desires to be shaped by God that we begin to, secondly, participate in what he is doing. He converts our mission by causing us to care about what he cares about. And secondly, he causes us to participate in what he is doing. It was said of the Thessalonians that they turned from serving idols to serving the true and living God. And notice, Paul wasn't there. He just heard about it. People were reporting, saying, there's been such a radical change that, that they're living differently. They look at their money differently. They, they look at their lives differently. They, they look at friendships differently. There's been a radical change, Apostle Paul. I don't know if they called them that, but Apostle Paul, we'll go with it. That their, their lives have been changed. And so Paul's writing is like, guys, I've heard about you. That you're living differently. You're no longer serving the idol of the self or whatever other idol it might be. We heard that the people who are living amongst you saw that you're serving the true and living God. How could anyone tell? By looking at their lives. See, people can tell by watching us what is most important and what is most valuable. They can tell by how we use our efforts, how we use our abilities, how we use our giftings. People can tell. Because at the end of the day, let's face it, you're gonna be remembered for what you're most passionate about. You will be remembered for what you are most passionate about. So what is it? What evidence is there in your life that you are working for the kingdom of God? There's a story of a, of a nun that I read in a book last year and she was caring for the wounds of a leper. She was there and she was cleaning and she was helping and a rich man walked by the nun as she was healing the wounds and the rich man said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. And she continued to care for that man. She was working for something different. She had an entirely different set of motivations that produced radically different practices. She believed in a different story. She believed in a different story. See what you care about cultivates your practices. On the mission of self, you use your your time, your money, and your talents to manage people's perceptions, right? Isn't that what most of our time is given to manage perceptions? Okay, my boss views me a certain way. No, I got I got to change that. What can I do to change that? Uh, for those of you who have a large online presence, you freak out when people post embarrassing things or accusative things on your profile, and you freak out and you lose sleep. and You're like, oh my gosh, delete, delete, delete! You can't say that about me online managing perceptions, trying to gain higher status so that the neighbors recognize you as, oh, you're, you're up and coming. And you're like, oh, I like that. I would like to be seen as a person who is up and coming. We use our time, our talents, our abilities to live a more comfortable life, avoid pain. But in the end, what do you have? If that's all that you're living for, what do you have? That's why you need to read the book of Ecclesiastes wonderful book. I taught it last year. I love that book. It's one of the first books in the Bible I read as a Christian. Because the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity. Sure, make a lot of money, you're going to die. What? You're like, oh, why is this in the Bible? Like, why is this there? (laughs) Like, why would you, okay, you're working for wealth? He says, okay, everyone else is going to get your wealth when you die. Somebody else is going to take it. That's why Alexander the Great, it was said of Alexander the Great, when he died, he had very specific instructions about his funeral. Which I know might seem a little morbid, but he had a point. He said, when I die, I want to be carried by my doctors. I want to be carried by my doctors. I want my jewels and rubies strewn out across the path where you're going to go bury me. And my last request is I want my arm hanging out of the casket. You're like, okay, Alexander was a freak. Alexander the freak would probably be a better title. Here was his point. Here was his point. I want people to know that there's no doctor on earth that can help you escape death. I want you to know that whatever treasure you have in this life, you give to somebody else. And thirdly, I want you to know that you leave this world how you came into it with nothing in your hand. If that's what you're living for, what does it mean in the end? What are you working for that the grave cannot destroy? Maybe some of you might say, well, it's not riches, it's legacy. People are gonna remember me. Maybe, maybe. And they'll eventually forget you. Right? We all daydream about it. Everyone's going to talk about me when I'm gone. Every parent, I see this happen all the time. Every parent imagines when their kids get married, they go to the wedding, they imagine this moment. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. They imagine the moment where their son or daughter takes the champagne and says, now I'd like to toast to my parents. And this is how it goes in your mind. Mom, dad, you're amazing you've always been there for me. Nobody else in the world has inspired me like you have. You were always there and I'd like to toast to my mom and dad. Some of you are like, yes, here's how it goes. Rewind, here's how it goes. Your kid says, mom, dad, you guys blew it all the time. It was crazy. You know, you weren't always there for me when I, when I like, but you know what? You're all right. <laughs> and the book of Ecclesiastes says, see, like, what are you living for? But in Christ, because he has destroyed the grave, he's given an entirely new meaning and purpose, and he's given all of us in this room a brand new vocation, a whole new mission. See, a missionary is often thought of as a Christian who's doing something different than most Christians. Isn't that a bummer? That should never have entered into the vocabulary of the church. A missionary, like, oh, you do something different than the rest of us. No, no, no. Christians are missionaries. When we start thinking about mission, we think, okay, I'm going to leave my job, and I'm going to move to Papua New Guinea. And I'm going to leave it at that, so let's pray. No. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. It may not involve doing something differently, but it does involve doing what you're already doing differently and for different reasons ordinary life with gospel intentionality so that you see all of your resources all of your capital you have emotional capital you have financial capital you have all this stuff and you see it as belonging to God so that where you live changes what would it look like if Jesus was king in your neighborhood what would it look like if Jesus was king in Santa Barbara what would it look like, dream? What would it look like if Jesus was king in Ventura? What would it look like if Jesus was king in Carpenteria? What would it look like? It would change the way you pray. You look at your neighborhood differently. You go, God, what are you doing? You, you look at who you know differently, because you don't see them as, as someone who's just helping you gain a higher status or credibility or just to give you a pat on the back. You look at them as a soul, as an image bearer of God, in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so you begin to preach the gospel and communicate the gospel. You look at what you have differently. All of your capital is now oriented around the kingdom of God. and You say, God, it's yours. It's all yours. My money, yours. House, yours. Car, yours. Giftings, yours. It's all reoriented around God and his mission. That's what it means to be missional is that everything changes. What you do, your vocation, your job, you are to be salt and light in the culture of the workplace. Where when you're on your lunch break, you say, God, I want to see your kingdom come in this place. I want my coworkers to meet you. I want people to be freed from addiction, being freed from their enslavement to idols. God, I want to see you at work where I am right here, right now. You become missional when theology breaks into real life. That's when you become missional, is when your theology breaks into reality, when it breaks into the here and now. Don't just think later or there. Think here and now. God, all of my stuff is yours. What does it look like for me to embody the presence of Jesus in where I'm at, in my neighborhood, caring for those in need, loving people, praying for them, pursuing them, What does that look like? What would it look like if Jesus was king in my workplace? Can you imagine that? Like if Jesus was the CEO? It'd be different, wouldn't it? So start living in that. Drag the future into the present. There is to be tangible evidence that we are living on mission, not for self, but for Christ. And so for that reason, we need to be equipped. That's why we have church services. For example, it's part of the equipping of the saints. That's why we gather together in community to stir one another up. A wonderful book called uh, The Missional Church puts it like this. Quote, the basic function of all theology is to equip the church for its calling. If that calling is fundamentally missional, then what we understand and teach about the church will shape God's people for their faithful witness in particular places. See, that, that's why we're here. That's why we gather. That's why we learn. That's why we pray. That's why we come down to the carpet and say, God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. God, take my resources. Take, help me to participate in what you're doing. That's how we are to pray. And I know that even as I talk about that, some of you think, well, gosh, like I know Susie and Susie gave up all our money and she moved to, to Haiti. Well, that's what God was calling Susie to do. If there's anyone still named Susie, which I, I venture there is, but don't allow guilt to motivate you right now. Okay. Guilt is the worst motivator. Grace is the best motivator. It's as simple as saying, God, what do you want me to do? Just speak to me. What do you want me to do? I want to participate in what you're doing. That is to be our prayer. Don't go into guilt mode and shame and condemnation mode, like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. No, no, no. Say, God, you know my life, you know my giftings, you know my abilities, you know what I have, you know my capital. So what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You begin to participate in what God is doing, and thirdly and finally, and I love this, God converts your mission by causing you to celebrate what he celebrates. I think that celebration is one of the missing ingredients in mission. It's one of the missing ingredients because we are called to be a people of celebration. We celebrate all the time, right? In in our lives, if, if if your kids have a birthday party, it's a celebration. If you get a raise, it's a celebration. Think of all the things that we throw parties for. We celebrate often, especially when things are going according to our life script right? God, yeah, you finally came through for me in chapter 25. Let's throw a party. Why do we celebrate? Because celebrations, whether it's a citywide celebration, like we do annually in our cities and communities, or it's a celebration in our own home, celebrations remind us of what is truly valuable. Like when we have holidays and things like this, celebrations remind us of what is truly valuable. So what does that look like in the kingdom of God? What does that look like on mission for God? Because in Jesus Christ, we've been given an even greater reason to celebrate, haven't we? We've been given even greater reasons to rejoice, why? Because we have a brand new version of success. We have a brand new version of success. Moving up higher in the corporate ladder does not always equate success, but somebody being freed from demonic oppression is success. Can I get an amen? You're like, yes, someone's freed from that. Freed from addictions. We rejoice. We celebrate. We celebrate when we see God at work. We celebrate when we see God moving. We celebrate when his mission advances. We have a whole new reason. Look at the life of Jesus. His disciples come back and they say, hey, we cast out demons. And Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Party right here and right now. Break out the blanket, fish, bread. Like, let's do it right here. Celebration. We rejoice when God is at work. Remember the parables that Jesus told? The parable of the lost coin? The parable of the lost sheep? Or the parable of the prodigal son? What's the point in each one of those narratives? We should rejoice when that which is lost becomes found. Jesus says that when one sinner repents, all of heaven is like, yes, on their big scoreboard. You know, it's like, yeah, Everyone is partying in heaven when one sinner rejoices because they have a different version of success than we do. And oftentimes, we don't participate in the celebration. We're like, yeah, sinners got saved today, whatever. Like, I need $20. (laughs) My boss was mean. Hey, somebody got delivered from meth. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, but like, I don't know. I didn't really get in the school I wanted to. I mean, whatever. I'm not, you know, I, I'm just as susceptible to those things as the other, but God's always reminding us to celebrate what he celebrates and to rejoice in what he is rejoicing in. Have you seen spiritual freedom in your life? Rejoice. Have you seen other people experience spiritual freedom? Rejoice. People being freed from idolatry? Rejoice. Paul hears about the Thessalonians. He rejoices. When those who are hungry are fed, rejoice. When people are brought out of sex slavery, rejoice. When the kingdom of God goes forward, rejoice. Celebration is one of the missing ingredients in mission. And it not only emphasizes or reminds us what is truly valuable, listen to this, Christian celebration is also done in anticipation of what is to come in the future when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we gather together in community, we are anticipating the fruit of the mission of God that there will be a day that everyone who has ever put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will sit around the most massive table you have ever seen, and there will be men and women from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and we'll be eating together, we'll be feasting together. Pastor G will be there with authentic Mexican food and all these other foods from around the world. We will be celebrating together, and Jesus will wipe away every tear from everyone's eye because there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and no more death. Our celebration now anticipates the celebration that we will partake in in the future. So the question is, what are you waiting for? Participating in the mission of God is caring about what he cares about. Participating in what he is doing here and now in your neighborhood, in your cul-de-sac, in your dorm room, in your workplace, and celebrating as you see God at work. Celebrating the mission. And as we do, there is a cost. There is a cost. It means we deny ourselves. We cut off evil and destructive behavior. Yes, there's a cost. So what is it that causes us to do that? What is, is it that causes us to count the cost? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, why would I do all that? It's when you see how Jesus Christ came and lived on mission for you. We said that you can tell what somebody values by what they spent. Look at Jesus. Jesus spent his whole life down to his own blood being shed because of his great love for you. Look at how Jesus Christ has lived on mission for you, how Jesus has pursued you, how Jesus gave up everything for you, and how because of him there has been a whole party in heaven thrown for you. In the kingdom of self, you use all your resources to find meaning and to get love, right? We use all our resources to find meaning and get love. But in the kingdom of God, you use all your resources for his mission because you have meaning and you are loved. You are loved. And you desperately want to share that love with everyone else. So friends, I'm inviting you to trade your life script for the one that God has written. The ending is way better. The ending is way better. Amen? Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would break the power of self, would break the power of idols in our lives so that we would be using our resources, our capital, that we'd be using everything differently in where we live, in the here and now, in our families, in our places of work. I pray that our concern would be to embody the presence of Jesus through preaching and declaring the gospel, serving other people, loving other people, so that others would say they have turned from serving the kingdom of self to serving the kingdom of God. And I pray that this would be so in the coastlands so that your mission would go forth. God, show us what you're doing and enable us to join in. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we reflect on what God is calling us to do, the first and most obvious thing that we are called to do is to repent. Repentance doesn't mean self-flogging. There's not whips down here at the front that if you feel guilty enough, you come forward and you whip yourself. like, yeah. Repentance means turn. Turn to God because he and his love and his mercy has turned towards you. Isn't that wonderful? So repent. Just come down here and raise your fist at your idols. Kill your idols down at the carpet this morning. When we worship together, we are saying to our idols, you have no power over us. How the worldview's success and status no longer has any power over us because our hearts have been absolutely captured by Jesus Christ, amen? That's repentance. And then surrender everything you have, your capital, how you've been using your time, your resources, say my art, my finance, my ability, my business, my family, my relationships, God, they're all yours. Show me what to do. Show me what to do. And as we do that, let us also celebrate. Let's sing with shouts of joy because Jesus lived on mission to save us. And he continues his work until that final day when we breathe our last and we see him face to face. And what a wonderful day that will be, church. Let's allow this service to be a celebration service, anticipating what God is doing now and what he's going to do in the future, amen? And in anticipation of that, we celebrate a simple meal the Lord's Supper, where you take the bread, dip it in the cup, and remember what it cost Jesus. Let's celebrate that now. Let's give him honor. If you need prayer for anything, come and pray with the men and women to my left and to my right in the prayer ministry. Come and say, I need the power of self broken. I need my idols killed. I need you to lead me in how I should live. I need you to guide me, God. Ask for more power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Let's do that now as we seek to live on mission for him.